Well, hi, everyone. Do you know, in the last job that I had a couple of years ago, I worked in an office that was decidedly anti-faith and incredibly anti-Christian. Now, I know that this is not a unique experience. Your workplace might be exactly the same. But in this office that I worked in, we worked in an open plan area, uh, and my colleagues would regularly call out things that they'd seen or heard related to religion and make fun of them. I remember the hysterical laughter that broke out when the story of John Chow was discovered. Uh, John Chow was an American missionary who was killed in 2019 by members of an isolated island tribe whilst trying to preach the gospel to them. Now, whatever you think about that story, I personally thought that laughing at his demise wasn't the nicest response. But they made so much fun of it. They were hooting with laughter about it. And it's not like anyone didn't know in that office that I was a Christian. For a start, it was a small office. There wasn't that many of us. And pretty much everyone knew that at one time I had worked for a church. I also wasn't the only known Christian in the building. Uh, there were also some Muslim and Hindu colleagues working with me as well. So it's not like there was no faith in that workplace. It's just that it was regularly criticized and belittled by some, power, some people who hold a lot of power and a lot of sway. How do you react in your workplace to those kinds of situations, which I believe are sadly all too common these days? Do you shut down, disengage, try not to bring up your faith too much publicly for fear of ridicule or perhaps even for fear of limiting your own career progression? What about if you knew what that was gonna be like before you came into that workplace? Would you perhaps not take that job because you knew what you were gonna be in for? How do you know who's gonna treat you well and, who, and who's gonna treat you badly? And how do you know what's coming when you enter into these situations? And how do we engage with people who ridicule our faith, who mistreat us, and who don't listen to what we have to say? Well, we'll come back to that a little bit later on. Because today we're looking at the back part of John chapter 13. We're gonna be starting from verse 18 and we're gonna go through to the end of the chapter. So if you have a Bible with you, you can get it ready now. Uh, we're going to read these verses together first. There's a, there's a lot of them, but let's read it through together and then let's step our way through it and unpack what Jesus is trying to say to us through these passages. So let's begin. Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I've chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples looked at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what he needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. 
As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will only be with you a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. These verses follow on from what is perhaps the most extraordinary act of service that Tim so very helpfully shared with us last week, and that is the washing of the disciples' feet. This incredible act, which is so rich in symbolism and deep in meaning and theology, provides us with the backdrop to today's part of the story. And our verses today are titled, Jesus Predicts His Betrayal. And so we move in the narrative from act of service to betrayal. What does Jesus mean when he says, one of you is going to betray me? Well, because we know how the story ends, we understand that what happens subsequently in the, in the rest of the story is that Judas gives up Jesus' location to the Pharisees and the Romans in exchange for money. In doing so, he unwittingly sets in motion God's plan for Jesus to be executed and to die for all humankind, thus satisfying God's judgment on the world and restoring our relationship with him because of what Jesus is about to do. The disciples, however, don't have this type of hindsight that we get to enjoy and that we now live in. And so for them, this is very confusing. But these verses tell us something about prophecy, Jesus' prophecy about himself and his echoes of scripture that he reminds them that he is fulfilling in their presence. They firstly serve to remind us once again of Jesus' divinity. Jesus begins by predicting Judas's betrayal and then later on in our verses, Peter's denial of him, which is a form of betrayal of some sort. And he does this for two reasons. The first is to fulfill scripture. When Jesus says these words in verse 18, he's directly quoting Psalm 41 verse 9, which says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Now this psalm was written by King David and expresses the same sorrow that Jesus is expressing here. In some translations, he, they use the words, um, where they say, use the words turned against me, it says lifted up his heel. It's a bit like going to your friend who you love and you trust and you extend a hand of friendship to shake their hand and they turn around and karate kick you in the guts with their heel. That's the shock and the dismay and the disappointment and disbelief that Jesus is echoing here from King David. We learn that as we go on in these passages, that Judas is the one who lifts his heel or turns his back on his friend. After Jesus had washed Judas's feet, after he shared bread with him, after he gave him the place of honor 
at the table. And what you're meant to understand is that this also brings to mind the prophecy in Genesis 3.15, right at the beginning of the Bible. After the fall of Adam and Eve, God says to the serpent, which represents the devil, that the Messiah will one day crush your head and you will strike his heel. You're meant to remember that when you read, when you, you, you read these passages. Now, he's not calling Judas the devil here, but the betrayal by Judas is an act of, betra- of, of betrayal, which is an act of the devil. And we see from these verses that Satan enters into Judas at the moment of his betrayal. What Jesus is reminding his disciples and us here is that the fulfillment of this scripture from the beginning of the, of the, the word of God through till now, that he is the savior that the world has been longing for. He is the one that's prophesied about. He is the one that is coming to fulfill all the scripture. And the second thing Jesus tells you here is, is that the reason he prophesies this about himself is so that you will believe. His concern here is for his disciples, not for his own safety or his own betrayal. He knows what's going to happen to him and he's willingly walking into it. But he wants his disciples to be comforted and reassured so that when it does happen, they will know this is what Jesus said was going to happen. And here's what I perhaps find the most extraordinary thing about this scene. Jesus knew it was going to happen. He didn't stop it. He knew it was going to happen. He knew what Judas was about to do. He knew what Peter was going to go on and do in disowning him. We'll talk about that in a moment. And yet he only reveals that he has this knowledge right at the very end of his public ministry, hours before his own crucifixion and excruciating death. Why? Have you ever heard the saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer? uh, Depending on your cultural reference, this was either first attributed to Sun Tzu, the legendary Chinese military strategist in his collections of writings called The Art of War, or the legendary mafia boss Michael Corleone in The Godfather Part Two. They both say this, apparently, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Is that what's going on here? Well, I don't think that's what's happening here at all. This is not that. This is not Jesus keeping his enemies close so he can keep tabs on them. See, at this point in the story, you have to remember that Jesus has spent something like three and a half years now with this group of disciples. He chose them to join him. He chose to live with them, to spend his time teaching them, sending them out, encouraging them, building them up. Remember, this is just after he washed their feet, after he shared the Passover with them, after he instituted the meal of the Last Supper with them and to do in remembrance of him. He knew that all of this was going to happen and he kept them around anyway. It doesn't make sense, does it? You know, sometimes, you know, you hear, I don't know, football managers who who have leaks in their dressing room, they try and find the mole and get rid of them because they cause a destructive influence in the rest of the dressing room. Jesus doesn't do that. He keeps them around. This is Jesus actively engaging with, encouraging and pouring into those who hate him those who don't follow follow him fully, those who will ultimately sell him out, those who don't care about him and reject him. And I think this is extraordinary. Romans 5, chapter 8 tells us that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. This is what love in action looks like. And there's a lot we can learn from this. There is so much that we can learn from Jesus' example. And it's found in the reaction of Jesus' disciples from Judas and on to Peter. And then it becomes about us as well. Let's have a look at the disciples first. What do we notice? We notice that although Jesus makes this betrayal plain and out in the open, they still don't realize exactly who he's talking about. They kind of look at each other and wonder, Lord, is it me? Are you talking about me when you say this? Peter even asks John to get Jesus to explain who he's talking about. They're all sitting around the same table together and they still haven't figured it out. Jesus plainly tells John it's the one that he's about to give the bread to, which he then does. Jesus, stooped in Jewish tradition, dips the bread into the dish and gives it to Judas as a sign of great honor. In Jewish mealtime tradition, this was a sign of great offer to dip your bread and offer it to someone next to you. It's almost like a final appeal to Judas's sensibility, which he ignores. And sadly, as we read in verse 27, Satan then enters into him. But even after this poignant scene, the rest of the disciples still don't understand what's happening. It's likely that maybe not all of them heard exactly what Jesus said to John when he told him, this is the one I'm going to give it to. But it's also clear from later on in our passage in verse 28 that they don't fully understand the significance of the act anyway. And when Judas leaves the room to go on his deceitful deed, they still assume good motives for him. They assume he's going to go do something good with the money as he has been doing all this time. Assumed he was going about his normal business. What does that tell us? I think that it's easy for us to look at this with the benefit of hindsight. It's easy for us to look at it with the benefit of the whole of Scripture and to see that the signs are so clearly there and painfully obvious and to think maybe the disciples were just a little bit dim. But the simple fact is they just didn't know. And if the people closest to Jesus and closest to Judas couldn't tell that someone who was outwardly following him was inwardly a betrayer, how can we? How can we tell that of the people around us? And could it therefore also be the case that someone around us who is so outwardly anti-Christian might secretly and inwardly be drawn by the love of Jesus. You just don't know, do you? To put it another way, have you ever encountered someone who didn't profess any faith of their own, but seemed so kind, so loving, so generous with themselves that you thought to themselves, that person would make an amazing Christian? I'm a pastor, so sometimes I encounter people like that. Or perhaps, more importantly, have you ever written someone off in your life because they seemed so anti anything to do with the things of God, anything to do with faith or religion, that you thought to themselves, there's no way that person would ever come to faith. To go back to my story at the beginning, should I have disengaged with my anti-religious colleagues and kept my head under the parapet? and not revealed what I know about the truth of the love of God because there's no way they'd ever be interested in a God that loves them and that longs to be in relationship with them. Of course not. But there's a challenge here for us, isn't there? Because there's a danger that we can categorize people based on what they say and what they do. And ultimately, we discover from this story that that's not a reliable way to know what's going on in someone's heart. 
We can act differently around people based on how they treat us and what they think about faith. Now, yes, let's be clear, the Bible does tell us that you can understand a bit about a person's heart by the fruits, by the outworking of their life. But Judas's example also shows us that we can't rely on our experience of people as a reliable indicator of what's going on inside them. Judas looked the part, and yet he was the one who betrayed Jesus. And so therefore our call then is not to discriminate to people about who we bring the kingdom of God to in our lives, who we try and bless, who we love and who we care for, but to simply be seed scatterers wherever we go and whoever we find ourselves with. So how do we do this? Because it sounds tough, doesn't it? If you just don't know, then what do you do? Well, after Judas leaves, Jesus knows now he's got his people in the room, the ones who are, who are genuinely earnestly following him. And he addresses the remaining disciples and his tone shifts and changes. And he gives them the focal point of these verses in the form of a new commandment. He starts addressing them differently. He calls them little children. It becomes much more tender, much more familial, much more about brotherhood and love and friendship. Because he knows now that the wheels have been set in motion and that the, father, uh, the plan the Father had for him is about to be fulfilled. In a few hours from now, Jesus will be captured in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Passion will begin. And so we see now this symbolic passing of the torch almost from Jesus to his disciples. And although this is not necessarily a new commandment, we see in Leviticus the command to love your neighbor as yourself. It now takes on a much deeper significance in Christ. Let's read it again. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another as he has shown them and demonstrated and poured out to them. So they are now called to love each other in the same way. We'll see later on in John's gospel in John chapter 15, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Love for one another then now becomes the defining characteristic of followers of Jesus. And although these verses very clearly call for love to be most powerfully evident within Christian community, they are also a call for us to be indiscriminate in how we show love to the world around us. They, those outside the church, those outside our circle, those outside the, load, the love of God currently, will know who we are and who we belong to by how we love one another and them. Love is the primary characteristic that demonstrates Christ dwelling within us and makes us salt and light in the world. It attracts us to unbelievers it makes us relatable to everyone. It makes, it's something that, that makes other people who don't know Jesus look at us and say, I want what they have. The Greek word used for love here is agape. Agape is a deep sacrificial love that is given freely without expectation of a response from the other party. It's sometimes poorly translated in Old English as charity. That doesn't give you the full depth of meaning of the word, but it does help you to, rem to be reminded that this is love demonstrated by actions and not just words. In service and not just in feeling and emotion. Remember, this command is given by Jesus just after he has physically washed their feet. 
is to remind us of the practical nature of this love. It's not just a call to be nice to people generally. This is the kind of love that is born out and worked through even in the midst of rejection, even in the midst of pain, sorrow, and even failure for people to respond. This is the type of love that Paul so eloquently describes in 1 Corinthians 13, that often quoted verses about love. Later, Jesus will tell his disciples how they are going to be able to love like this. And again, because we know how the story ends, we know that the only way we can pour out love like this to other people is in the same way that God has loved us, is through the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit if we're going to be equipped to love each other and to love the world in this way. And so therefore this becomes a moment for us to consider, as Paul encourages us to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? We want to be a people that respond to that call today, don't we? And I just want to encourage you, if Jesus is recalling himself towards you, is calling you to, to come and dwell in your heart today, don't let Satan enter your heart as Judas did, but respond to him even now. Respond to the call of Jesus in your life. As we come to a close, let's take a look at how Peter responds. Judas, unfortunately, doesn't get another chance after this. We read in verse 30 that as soon as he took the bread, he makes his decision, he leaves. John poignantly records in verse 30 that it was night. He's not just describing the time of day here, but also the state of Judas's soul. Later, ashamed and full of remorse at what he's done, Judas will symbolically throw the money that he'd earned for betraying Jesus away and hang himself out of guilt. It's a terrible, desperate end to his story. But what about Peter? Peter initially displays pride in last week's verses at not wanting Jesus to wash his feet. He thinks that Jesus is too good to do it. And then later in these verses today, he expresses a blind desire to follow Christ everywhere, not really knowing exactly where Jesus is going and what he's about to do, not fully understanding the consequences of what he's saying. He can't quite believe Jesus when Jesus says to him in verse 38, very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter also becomes a broken man later on in the narrative, as he does betray Jesus exactly as predicted. However, the difference between Judas and Peter is what was going on in their heart. Peter, however misguided and however over-eager he was to demonstrate his love outwardly, also knew that he longed for Jesus and wanted to, to serve him with all of his heart. And at the very end of John's gospel, we see Peter gloriously restored at this episode called the barbecue on the beach in John 21. Uh, in Everyday Kids, we actually looked at that story a couple of weeks ago, and our memory verse when we did so was Colos Colossians 1 uh, verse 14, which paraphrased says, Jesus brings us back, restores us, our friendship, and forgives us. That's exactly what happens to Peter at the conclusion of John's gospel. Peter discovers the restoration and forgiveness of Jesus for himself and goes on to devote his life to loving those around him and demonstrating the love of God to the world. But how do we respond? Well, 
I think a great example is seen in the UK over the past couple of weeks in the death and funeral of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Now, whatever you think about her in, as a person or the monarchy in general as an institution, millions, possibly even billions of people around the world have recently paid their respects to her and heard her story of love, service, and devotion to her people, regardless of whether they shared her very strong Christian faith or not. And what the world heard clearly communicated was that it was her deep love of the God dwelling inside of her and her desire to demonstrate this agape love to everyone around her that drove her to serve her people in any way she could. We don't all have her position or her title, but we all as followers of Jesus have her call. By this, we know that her majesty was his disciple in the way that she loved one another. May we emulate her example. May we love those around us in Christ, whether they're for him or against him, whether they care about faith or not, in exactly the same way as she has demonstrated to us. Let me pray and let's have a respond to God together. Jesus, our desire is to love you, to worship you, and to serve you. We recognize that to do that, we need your help. And so we ask, Father, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit now, which will equip us and empower us to demonstrate the love that you have so richly given to us onto a world who really needs to hear it. Father, we live in times where people don't care about faith or religion, but they do care when someone loves them. And so I pray for Holy Spirit that you would dwell inside us and that people outside the church would recognize the way that we love each other and the way that we love them says something about the glorious God that dwells inside us. Father, pour out your spirit on the world, pour out your spirit on the nations, and may the world come to know you because of your great love for them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.